Well, good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and you're very welcome to tonight's lecture. My name is Brian McGill, and I'm from the school in Dublin. And tonight's talk is entitled Philosophy and Energy. And the subtitle is in the form of a question, and it simply asks us to consider why we waste so much. And this is a serious question, and it's an important question. If, for example, we were losing money out of our pockets on a regular basis, I think we would very quickly take corrective action. If the amount were serious, we would actually spend considerable time looking for it. Do you know that feeling when you, you've lost 20 pounds or 50 pounds and there's a sense of regret? There's a sense that you've actually lost something quite valuable. You may even spend time retracing your steps, trying to remember where you may have lost it to try and recover it. So it's a very important question to consider. Why do we waste so much energy? Why do we fritter away so much valuable energy? So tonight's talk is like calling in the plumber to fix a leak, except in our case it's more like we have a colander. Do you know what a colander is? And there's lots of leaks. Because it would appear on examination that we waste it in quite a number of different ways, which we're going to explore shortly. Now, having an unlimited supply of energy is very attractive. And we all know that when we have lots of energy, we would drive 20 miles out of our way for a stranger. And when we haven't got so much energy, we wouldn't change a light bulb for our family. You recognize that. You would actually leave some very small task for a weekend, for a whole weekend, something very simple, simply because you seem to be depleted in your supply. Now, there's a more important reason for considering this question of energy. The first aspect is it helps you to live a healthier and better life. That's an obvious aspect. If we had more energy, we could live a more enjoyable life, possibly more efficient. And we could meet the world in good shape. We could deal with what comes our way, work-wise and family-wise. But there's a much more important reason. And the more important reason is that if all our energy goes on changing light bulbs and managing our affairs, it leaves very little to attend to the real purpose or why we're here in the first place. Now you may have to take a leap of faith and consider that we're definitely here for more than changing light bulbs and managing basic household affairs of life. And if you're to question what is our true purpose, why are we actually here, why do we need to conserve energy, it is to discover the truth about oneself. You may articulate this differently. You may say, find my way back to God. You may ask in the form of a question, who am I? In the Upanishads, it says that once you know yourself, 
Everything is known. So it's this quest for self-knowledge, which is our real and substantial purpose. But if all our energy and effort is going to the basic household duties and housekeeping, then there's none left for this purpose, so we fail to do any work. But this is where philosophy comes in. Philosophy is concerned with the love and application of wisdom. And a life guided by wisdom would indeed be a life where you would conserve energy. And if energy is conserved, it will show itself physically as measure. Mentally, the mind will be clear and governed by reason. And emotionally, the hearts will be open. Whereas a life governed by lack of energy, or a life where the energy is wasted, would show itself in excess, or deprivation indeed, in all things physical, dullness and lack of capacity in the mental world, and resistance or lack of enthusiasm when it comes to our heart, or emotional responses to things. So the aim really should be to have one's life governed by wisdom. And you can take from that that a life governed by wisdom would be a life where energy is conserved. This may sound a little hard, but lack of energy could equate with lack of wisdom. So if I find myself feeling drained of energy at the end of the day and just seem to have enough to maintain the, the basic physicals of life. There's a question mark over the level of wisdom. There's a question mark over what's actually guiding my life. Now, what do the wise have to say about energy? I've chosen a piece from a teacher known as Shankaracharya. This is a teacher who the school has had contact with down through the years. And during the last 30 years or so, the leader of the school worldwide has visited this teacher every two or three years. And questions are put to this man on different subjects. And this is one of his answers with regard to energy. Only a limited measure of energy has been provided to each individual for his life, which he may use economically or squander or even increase by certain ways which make this possible. Just as when one takes a journey, one knows where he is going and he also receives certain expenses for the journey. So this life is a journey and people get some expenses according to what they deserve. The fool will spend them all, but an enterprising man would take to some trading or work on the way to replenish his capital 
and move on until he gains liberation. The aim, according to Shankaracharya, is liberation. Or freedom. Now, what struck me when the first time I read that statement was that we're born with a limited supply. It's like each of us is given a little dollop. And then depending on what we do, we either wait or replenish. Now, what is energy? In this context, what is it? Well, continuing with Shankaracharya, he goes on elsewhere to say that energy is a substance. It's the capital with the person. And the use of this capital depends on the taste. Whatever he thinks right, good, and useful, he will invest his capital in. Here is the need for discrimination, to let him see things as they are, and choose the better, and exercise stability in using the energy. So here he's saying it's a substance, like capital. You could think of it like money in the bank. Taste governs use, which is a curious statement, which is very like money in the bank. Taste governs how you spend your money. So taste governs how we spend our energy. But more importantly, discrimination is the toolkit. Discrimination is the method by which we either conserve or squander. Now, what is meant by taste governs use? Taste is a way of describing our tendencies, like what we tend towards. And we've acquired a particular set of tendencies depending on who we are. And these tendencies have become second nature. They've become part of us. And I don't know if you've noticed, but you may see that you actually gravitate towards the same types of things all the time. I think I have about six bluish-colored pinstripe suits. There's a general tendency to move towards the same things and be attracted to the same things. And whatever we think, to use the words of Shankaracharya, whatever we think is good, and useful and right, we will develop a taste for. Now, whether it is good and right and useful may be questionable, but it's whatever we do think is good and right and useful we develop this taste for. So it shows itself in the food we eat, the way we eat it, the clothes we wear, the interests, what we devote our time to, what we think about, what we long for, who we marry, the sport we're interested in. So everything we engage with 
and participate in is governed by taste. All those things we're not interested in is governed by taste. So to summarize it, it's, it's like what we go for. So coming to this evening's lecture, on a nice sunny evening, is an indication of your taste. You must think this is good, or you must think this is useful. Otherwise, we wouldn't be here. We'd have found something else to do. So it's what we go for, and we can either go for what's very fine and beautiful, or we can go for what's coarse. And taste governs that move, if you like. And the span is very large. From the very fine to the very coarse is large. And this is where discrimination comes in. So discrimination is about seeing clearly. It's about choosing the fine, choosing wisely. And when discrimination is working properly, there's no resistance. It's not a battle, it's not a tug between good and bad. There is no resistance. There's a decision made and there's a willingness to follow it. And it's very simple. Now, everyone discriminates according to their knowledge. And this is where philosophy comes in again, because philosophy is about providing us with true knowledge. So even if our powers of discrimination are weak, if we seek to be guided by philosophy, we are seeking at least to provide ourselves with true knowledge, which in turn will affect our capacity to discriminate. Some examples of poor discrimination are familiar ones would be things like sitting late at night watching a TV show and in your head there's a little voice saying, go to bed. You recognize that? There's a little voice there saying, go to bed, and you're saying, no, 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 no. Or doing anything and at the same time knowing that you shouldn't, knowing it's not quite appropriate. That would be an indication of weak powers of discrimination. It's just not strong enough. There's a sense of knowing what to do. There's a sense of knowing the right course of action to take. And at the same time, there doesn't seem to be the energy to actually follow through. I was at a business meeting some time past in Cork. And each morning we were there, these trolley full of beautiful, freshly homemade scones were wheeled in at 10 o'clock, you see. And one of the men attending this meeting said to himself, I'm not having a scone this morning. And 10 o'clock came and the trolley was wheeled in with this beautiful pyramid of delicious-looking homemade scones. And he stood up from the table, walked over, picked up a scone, cut it, buttered it, creamed it, jammed it, and ate it. So one minute he's sitting at a table talking noble ideas of not having a scone, and within seconds he's actually eating one. 
that would be an indication of poor discrimination. So let's examine how we waste energy. We waste it in three different ways. The first is physical. We waste it physically, mentally, and emotionally. In physical matters, it's lack of measure. And where there's a lack of measure, it's either excess or deprivation. It's attempting to satisfy the appetites to the full. And there's a curious aspect to this, that more food, for example, doesn't produce more energy. More food actually depletes it, as you all well know. I should say, as we all well know. If you keep on eating, you don't become more energetic. You become less energetic. And this applies to all the appetites. Trying to satisfy appetites to the full results in a depletion of energy. And there is an interesting statement about this, that those who eat the most and sleep the most do the least. And if you examine this, it's self-evident, and yet in the, the hustle and bustle of a day, we all could find ourselves seeking to satisfy appetites to the full. This also applies to work. Excess work will result in fatigue. So too will idleness. So there's a measure to all things physical. And we can be very busy doing nothing, using lots of energy, doing nothing. And you'll see this sometimes if you have a phone call or a task you're reluctant to do. You know those kind of phone calls where you just do not want to do it? You'll, be, you'll see yourself being very, very busy doing everything except that particular task. You'll paint the office rather than do that particular task. So lots of energy being used, being idle, not actually attending to what it needs to be attended to. So the main area in the physical world where we waste energy is in seeking to satisfy the appetites to the full. In the mental world, the first most striking one is all the inner speech. This is talking to ourselves, speculating on the future, considering what we're going to say, who we're going to say it to, when we're going to say it, how we're going to say it. Not only do we rehearse what we're going to say, but we rehearse what they're going to say after we've said what we have said. So there's lots of speculation about future and reliving past events. All the thinking we do. I know that a lot of what we engage in in the mind, we actually think is useful. We think it's very valuable. Thinking about this and thinking about that. and Thinking about what one has to do, what one doesn't want to do, what one would like to do, how one is going to do all this, when one's going to do it. 
if you look, there's an incessant thinking going on in the mind. And it's a substantial drain on energy, I'm afraid. And it's very hard to be convinced through a discussion that this is a waste of time. Because we somehow think that it's not. Somehow we believe that it's very important to do all this thinking. And there's a very fine line between thinking it's very important and engaging in it and realizing that it's a complete and total waste of time. The line is hair thin. But even to hear it as a provocative statement, it's all a complete and total waste of time. Every ounce of it. And if that encourages you to look, well then it's, it's very useful. And we justify a lot of it, we call it planning. But you have to plan for the future. See, most of it, unfortunately, is not planning. It's just this thinking. And it's, it's a little bit like having the car revving up and one foot on the brake. Nothing's happening with this thinking. It's just thinking. And sometimes we think ourselves into states. At the end of term last week in school in Dublin, the group went for a glass of wine. And one of the students kept looking at her watch, saying, oh, I've, got, I've got to get my eight hours, he said. She kept saying this. She had a glass of wine in one hand, the watch in the other, and she was a nervous wreck. I've got to get my eight hours. I, I, can't, I can't function if I don't have my eight hours. You could actually see this girl working herself up into quite a state. She was exhausting herself and all of us. And that's just a deep-seated idea, closely held and believed, and occupied all her mind. You may spot this sometimes on a Sunday afternoon. Sometimes Monday starts at about 3 o'clock on Sunday afternoon. where speculation starts about next week and what's happening, what you have to do and all this type of thing. It actually takes from the enjoyment of one day and doesn't bring anything useful to the Monday that you're now concerned with. And in terms of energy, all it does is tire us out. So we're still talking about the mind and the waste of energy. Daydreaming fantasizing about all sorts of things. Dreading an impending event. Not attending to what needs to be done when it needs to be done, which we already mentioned. And attending to others' business. If you examine what we spend a lot of time thinking about, it's someone else's actual business. And we seem to have this tremendous capacity and knowledge about how everybody should do everything. You know, you have an idea how everyone should drive, how everyone should behave, strangers and friends and foe alike, and family, all their decisions, how they should be made, and 
what they should use as their guide for making them. And this occupies a lot of time, a lot of space. Now, we don't choose what enters the mind, but we do choose what we entertain. Personally, I find that sentence very, very encouraging. It's like there's a lot of old stuff comes into the mind, and you, we have a choice as to whether we entertain it or not. So all of these items we've listed are going to come and go with great regularity. And we can simply make a decision, we entertain this or we don't. Entertaining it is wasting our substance, wasting energy, and letting it go and allowing it to pass is conserving. Moving on to the emotional area, the waste of energy here, probably the most obvious one is dwelling on negativity. And again, it may not appear obvious, but we do have an element of choice here as well. The amount of time given to worry. And there are lots of erroneous ideas supporting this. Ideas such as, if I don't worry about something, it won't be resolved. That would be a very common idea. And unfortunately, it's not true. It's the reverse. While I'm worrying about it, it will not be resolved. And yet, we repeat the pattern with great regularity. Taking offence. And there's a curious survey we could do. Are you interested in doing a little survey? Well, hands up all those people who left their home this morning intentionally to cause offence to others. None. So nobody left their home this morning intentionally to cause offence, did they? No is the answer. Right. Hands up those who may take offence before this evening's out. See, this is absurd. Nobody sets out to cause offence. Yet we could conceivably all take offence a number of times today. That's a very curious thing. Not only could you take offence, but it could be someone's glance. I could have caused offence already here, I don't even know. He might like the look of me tired or something, I don't know. But if we actually take the offence, take it to our hearts and dwell on it and consider it for as long as we want. And for some people that could be a number of days over a small issue. Or it could be a lifetime. You may have taken offence six years ago about what somebody said and it's never gone away, it's still there. And it may have been a simple little remark about something. This is serious. I don't mean to get too morbid, but it's serious if we recognise that a lot of time and energy is wasted in this area. What a waste. If we had a million people in this room and we asked the same question, nobody would put their hand up. 
So nobody's intentionally causing, yet everybody is out there taking. It's perverted. Criticizing oneself and others. Another drain on resources. This is literally just criticizing yourself. Criticizing others. Criticizing their actions, criticizing their views. Criticizing oneself, one's own behavior. We could be very hard taskmasters on ourselves. And this can be a constant source of drain. Acting or refraining from action based on fear. And if you examine this, while we're afraid to do something, that thing we're afraid of isn't being attended to. And all that's happening is energy is being used up. Our attention is being given to the fear rather than actually tackling the issue. And it's a very simple direction which is to you know, face these fears, address the small fears, because there's lots of them, little ones. Little small ones, like speaking to a person, going to a particular venue or a particular event. And there's lots and lots of little fears. There's plenty of room for work. Now, keeping up appearances is described as the most exhausting thing in life. Keeping up appearances, maintaining an image of oneself. You recognize this socially. For social occasions where you, we break our necks trying to keep up some sort of appearance. It is exhausting. It's not enjoyable and it's not natural. It's not being oneself, it's just trying to keep up some sort of appearance. So these are some of the ways in which we waste energy, and we waste volumes of it, I'm afraid, in the mental area, in the emotional area, and in the physical area. Now the effects of wasting all this energy, if you revert back to what Shankaracharya's opening statement is that we are born with a supply, then the effects of this waste are very simple. We can use a lifetime's energy in a very short time. And you may all know somebody who's used up a lifetime's energy in a very short time. I have my own father as an example. He was married at a young age, busy uh, man in terms of his work, worked too hard, had nine children, and he was dead by 42. And if I think of his life, I think of a man who used up 80 years of energy in 42 years.
So you can actually squander it, like what was said in that opening piece. We can't waste it and squander it. The single biggest difficulty is that we don't have sufficient to attend to what's really important. And as said at the outset, it would be a shame to pay the mortgage and pay all the bills and have enough energy just to attend to those matters and not to attend to what's really important. In the Christian tradition, Jesus tells us to seek first the kingdom of God and then all else is added unto you. The sense here is that we can spend a lot of our life seeking everything else with some idea that we'll attend to the kingdom of God later on sometime. Maybe when we're 70 or older. We'll just slip in the back door. Now, it's an important question, and it's really just to consider, do we think this is just the way things are? that there's an inevitability about it, and it's a natural thing. We can do nothing about it. Well, the answer is no. It isn't the natural order of things. And if you take something like a new car as an example, you could take a new car out of the showroom today, and some people in 25 years' time will have that vehicle looking like it did the day it was bought. Some, it will look like a wreck in a few months. And what determines one from the other is taste and use and care and understanding. And with proper care and proper understanding and proper use, there's no reason why the car can't be maintained for 30 years. And it's exactly the same when we speak of the human instrument. Because this human being is an instrument. The body's an instrument. The mind's an instrument. The heart is an instrument. And they're not that different from the car in that sense. They have to be cared for properly. Now, you know when you get into a perfectionist car, it's not very pleasant. You're afraid to touch anything. And it's all a bit tense. So we don't want that. We don't want the sort of the tension of the perfectionist. And by the same token, you get into some cars and it's like a kip or a skip, a rubbish tip. You seem to recognize that one. So on one hand, you have the perfectionist, which is fairly tense and brittle, and it could all snap any second. And then the other hand, you've got the rubbish tip, which is just neglect. So somewhere in here, somewhere in between, there is a natural order. There's discovering a natural care and use of this human instrument that maximizes, allows for a long life, full life, in good shape. Now, how do we stop the leaks? The Shankaracharya says that discrimination is the toolkit. So discrimination is this 
choosing, this capacity to choose. And for discrimination to work properly, the mind has to cease from its coarser activities. The mind needs to be put on a diet. And at the moment, the mind is on a sort of a McDonald's diet. And we need to raise the standard. And without discrimination, the tendencies will just continue. There's no shift in them. I'm sure you have noticed these tendencies are very strong. And they're quite hard to break as such. Without discrimination, they're nearly impossible. We end up practicing a form of restraint, which can prove quite painful. And then we revert to type very quickly. Discrimination is that faculty that is needed to really dissolve the tendencies to use the mind in one way and the heart in another. Now, if you'd like to do a discrimination health check, this is like a barometric reading, if that's the right word. If one is disturbed and perturbed, if one is drawn into situations and involved in them, and if one experiences excitements, pleasures, outbursts of anger and pain, then discrimination is not working properly. So you may have passed the check, I'm not sure. So being disturbed. Just reflect back on the day. Consider the number of times one was disturbed today. These would be little small disturbances now. Excitements, pleasures, outbursts of anger and pain. Then discrimination is not working. Now we've singled out three ways to practice improving our powers of discrimination. And they are, the first one is attention. The second one is meditation. And the third I've called making one's work sacred. We'll explain the three of them in a moment. Now whatever the method you use or whatever you set about to actually attend to, Nothing will happen without an appreciation of need. So there needs to be an appreciation of the need to address this issue first. Otherwise, nothing is possible, nothing shifts. Appreciation of the need on its own is not enough. A resolution to actually address it. And then some endeavor, some effort is required. Now, if we look at the three ways to practice or and improve discrimination, the first one being attention, and this is probably one of the simplest. Simply practicing doing one thing at a time. Like right now, attending this talk. If your attention is fully with the listening, and you're just here listening to this talk, you are practicing attention, which helps improve and strengthen your powers to discriminate. If, on the other hand, the attention is divided, then that will be weakening the situation.
And split attention is a constant drain on energy. And this is a very simple one to examine. You can see it. You can become aware of it quite easily. We've become masters at it. We can drive cars through villages and see nothing. We can speak with people and hear nothing. I'm sure you wouldn't, but you could go out of here this evening and think, oh, what was he talking about? You could actually attend an evening like this and not take in anything at all. Be totally caught up with something else. That is like having a great big hole in the petrol tank. Now, it's a very simple little flag as well. If there's any tension in the body, the attention is split. So, there's a, a helpful little play on the two words. Tension in your physical body is an indication that the attention is split. So an indication that the attention is singular would bring ease to your physical setup. Sense of ease and rest. So that's like a little flag you have raising all the time, helping you, if you like. And a curious way to practice this is practice the fullness of attention with things that you love doing. Like start with the things you really love doing. So that's the first item. The second one is meditation. And meditation brings rest and clarity to the mind. It's a simple, potent, powerful tool. And if you take what was said at the outset, that taste governs how we use the energies. Meditation is one certain way to refine taste. And it would happen automatically. The practice of meditation would refine tastes. The move would be from coarse upwards, up towards fine. We don't even have to know how it works. It just happens automatically. The common view is that rest is only available on the completion of work. You may recognize in yourselves that there's a sense that I'll have a rest on Friday. I'll have a rest on Saturday morning. It's great, the weekend is nearly here, I'll have a rest on Sunday. But it's an idea that rest is at the completion of something or at the end of something. Now, the wise know that rest is always available. And it's not dependent on location, and it's not dependent on a day. So rest isn't available only on Saturdays. And meditation is the most powerful tool for accessing that rest. And Monday morning can be as restful and as enjoyable as Saturday. It doesn't have to have this inevitable negative flavor to it. And the rest that we long for isn't delivered on Friday evening. It doesn't actually arrive.
The Shankaracharya said the following about meditation and energy. When one goes into meditation, one reaches the source of energy and one gathers back what one has spent during the day or during the year. It only depends on the purity and quality of meditation as to how much extra energy one will have regained or replenished to be able to do more and better work. So that's speaking of meditation. The third aspect was making work sacred. And this may sound a little far away initially, but it's really very simple. When I'm working for myself, I'm thinking of myself, the energies, I'm afraid, are depleted very quickly. When considering work for others, somehow that brings energy. It's a curious thing. It appears to be a very slight move, and yet the effect is quite dramatic. Now, there are three ways of spending our energy, or there are three ways of working. One is on oneself, one is for others, and the third way is to actually work for all. And if you consider any of the great visionaries down through history, one thing that you always associate with them is extraordinary energy. If you think of someone like a Mandela, or a Gandhi, or a Mother Teresa, if you just bring to mind those people, one quality that's fairly obvious is this tremendous energy. And the relationship between that energy and their work is who is at the center of their work. And if the center of my work is me, I'm afraid the energies go down. So to shift the focus of my attention with regard to my work from myself to something greater brings energy by itself. And staying with those examples, having a vision for your life will bring energy. Having a vision or a sense of purpose about anything lends energy. So work without a purpose is a big drain on energy. Any project that you're involved in that you don't know the purpose of is very tiring. But the moment you know the purpose of something, it actually has this tremendous capacity to lend energy. Now, life is no different. If one were to get the sights and the focus onto a purpose of life, it would also bring energy and lend energy to that purpose. So there's a useful question to ask is, what is the vision? Or what is the aim of this life? Very good to write that question down on a blank pad somewhere and just consider it. What is the aim or what is the vision for this life?
Now, the effects of conserving energy, those who discriminate begin to find that their actions become of a different nature. The way they walk, see, eat, think, the way they conduct their professional work takes a different turn from that of common men because every action is refined, beautiful and efficient. This results in happiness and peace. Whatever situation is presented before them, they would not lose control. They remain peaceful and utilize the best of their energy to do the job. If they succeed, they will not be much elated. If they fail, they will not feel sorry at all. Failure and success, profit and loss, pleasure and pain find a general level in them. They are neither too much excited nor too much depressed. Finding a general level of these opposite results, they never waste their energy unnecessarily, so they can face the next situation freshly and with enough energy. It would be seen that they are detached and therefore unperturbed. Now, just to conclude, Mother Teresa said, In stillness, we find a new energy and real unity. God's energy becomes our energy, allowing us to perform things well. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you. So, now it's really over to you to raise any questions you like about the subject. I found the talk excellent, and you mentioned about having a vision in your life. I was wondering, what is the best way to decide upon your vision without squandering mental or emotional energy? I think that the main thing is to start with questions. To actually ask, what is the vision? You can very simply get a piece of paper out, a blank pad, and write at the top of the pad, what is the vision for this life? And start looking at what you're actually doing. What exactly are you at? And vision has levels in it. So you have, I'll just show you here. The smallest level is me. For vision to be more substantial and more true, it should be at least more than me. Does that make sense? Family would be the next level. So what is the vision for this family? would be one step away from just thinking about myself as such. You may think bigger again, which is community. Or you can think at the level of nation. If you take someone like a Mother Teresa, Mother Teresa thought of the level of the universe. But in her particular work, she was on her knees picking up, you know, people who were close to death. But you thought at the level of universe. You can start to inquire, what is the vision for this life? And actually start to question. That's the simplest way to actually begin to question it. And just approach it from the point of view of thinking outside myself.
It will be related to some service. Whether it's a business or not, it wouldn't matter. It should be related to some service. So what is the vision for this life? How can I serve this community? How can I serve this family? How can I serve this nation? What is the need? The need is usually what inspires people. They see the need, and then from that comes a sense of vision. So Mother Teresa, if I could use her again as an example, she sees the need to assist these people who are on death's door in the worst city in the world, and she goes and addresses that need. It's from seeing the need that the vision comes. Thank you. I was also wondering, is there any room for positive visualization in terms of achieving your vision, or is that considered a waste of mental energy? What do you mean by positive visualization? Just so imagine me as Mother Teresa, not in an exaggerated sense, you know, see me doing what I think I might want to do. Well, you see, a true vision is a bit like that, but it wouldn't be dreamy. You know, true vision is something that's etched on your heart, and you would actually carry it with you every day. So it would have an effect on your actions today, how you speak today, how you behave today. If it doesn't have an effect on your actions today, it's only a dream. So the real visionary has it in their heart, and they perform and act and speak right now in accordance with their vision. It's not something that comes from a book, or it's not learned. So Mother Teresa didn't sit down and work out, I wonder what my vision for be like. She saw a need in humanity. And the need was right under her nose, and it was immediate. So she went and addressed that. Thank you. Okay. Uh, overcoming uh, a resentment, uh, every once in a while, if somebody should offend me, I feel if I were to go back to try to correct the situation and to say, I feel hurt by what you said, I feel I would do more harm than good by going back. So very often I can carry, I can be trying to straighten it out in my mind and at the same time losing a lot of, a lot of positive time over it, or like you know, losing, losing energy over it. Yeah. Have you any suggestions on that? <laughs> yeah. This is just dwelling on resentment, is it? Yeah, right. Dwelling on resentment. I'm wondering if I can get things sorted out, then again saying, no, I can't. Changing my mind repeatedly about, I will do something, no, I won't. Yeah, that's all part of it, isn't it? All that dwelling and considering and thinking. You see, you really have to see that you have a choice in this matter. And the choice is whether you dwell or not. And dwelling is the difficulty. So, for example, the moment something happens that you regard in this category, like negative offense type issue or an issue that you're hurt over, you have this choice there. And the choice is you dwell or you let go. And a lot of the dwelling is the stuff you're talking about. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. You know, the little hurt comes in, you see. Someone causes you a little offense. 
And that little immediate response is natural. It's emotional and it's natural, an immediate response like that. You see? That's it. But then we actually do this with it, you see? And how can we stop for a break? And then we go home and say, wait, I'll tell you what happened. Now, you see, we decide how long this is. And the blue dot is that. And there are some days someone could say something to you and it is like that. Aren't there? And there are other times and days, depending on the relationship and the situation, and you could go round and round and round forever and ever on end. And all we're doing is wasting energy. It's like diving into a septic tank and just swimming around in there. It's all very cozy and warm, but it's not very nice. Don't be fooled. There is an attraction with this. We do have a perverted sense of enjoyment in this. It's a little bit twisted, but it is enjoyable in a way. Hence the septic tank analogy. So, quite often, we might speak about this subject, like negative feelings and dwelling on resentments, as if they have a power of their own. But we do lend them power. And there is an attraction for going back there again and again and again, and we keep doing it. So it does take a little appreciation of, really, there is a need to stop this. And then just practicing stopping it. Appreciating that you can actually stop it is helpful. So appreciation of the need to stop this, realizing that you are the actual architect of it, realizing that you have some choice in this matter. It's not just, I'm helpless. That sounds better, all right. I feel very enlightened on it now. Because, like, in the past, I've always fueled it and fed it. If I go back, if I say this, he's bound to say that. And that'll make me even angrier. And I'll find something similar that happened in another different argument. I'll add on to it, like, you know. But going by what you said there, you've put a lot of light on it. Well, the idea is to let go. Let go. It takes a big, big, big person to let go. Any old fool can do this. It doesn't require any intelligence. It doesn't require any effort to dwell on negative feelings. But it does require a little wisdom, and it takes a big person to actually be able to let go of things. Also, it's a curious thing that a lot of the offense we take is not intentionally caused by other people. If you investigate it, you find that we're all the time taking offense, but it's us taking something. It's not actually being caused by another person. You know, we're attributing cause to them, but it's not really them at all. Does that make sense? Yeah, that does, yeah. yeah. I heard somebody say once, Offense is taken, not given. I forget that sometimes. Yeah. But it's very useful to be reminded of that fact that we take it. It's not actually given. Like no one in this room set out this morning to cause offense to people, did you? <laughs> Sorry. But you didn't. No one in this room got up this morning and said, I'm going to see how much offense I can cause today. 
but we could all take offence before the night is out. So, is that right? Yeah, that's thank fine. you. Thank you. This man on the frontier. Making the work sacred. Is it about fulfilment, David, in response for your making it sacred? Or has it anything to do by some other body's evaluation? No, it's moving the work away from me, really. It's not being selfish. To make work sacred would be to work for others. So, for instance, you could drive home here this evening for yourself. And if you're driving your car for yourself, you're competitive. Everyone on the road is a, a fool and they don't know how to drive. And they should be all removed forcibly. They're all in my way. And that would be the attitude of driving for me. That wouldn't be very sacred. Driving with due consideration for everybody wouldn't have you pitted against them. So you wouldn't be against everybody. And the concern would be for the welfare of everybody, not just for you. And that would make the same journey home sacred. You don't have to change the actions. That's the best part. It's the attitude, or it's where you're coming from while acting. If it's for me, it's tiny. It's the smallest reference point for any action. If it's for all, then it's very substantial. Like what we were speaking of earlier, their vision. Thinking at this level is the smallest level. You know, thinking at the level of, say, nation. It's just thinking now. The only difference between Gandhi and the other billion Indians was thinking. Like Gandhi wasn't even good looking. Do you know what I mean? He's a little short brown Indian in a nappy. <laughs> Didn't add up to a whole lot looking at him. But a giant in his thinking. And his thinking was the nation. What is in the interest of this nation? So he was thinking way outside himself. The tendency is to think of yourself and refer everything to yourself. Making work sacred is to stop thinking and referring to myself. Is it related to other people's opinions? No, no. And it happens in very simple actions. You're sitting on a bus and you simply turn and open out to the needs of people around you, rather than squander your thinking and your energies thinking about yourself. Like Anthony DeMello says, when you're miserable, you're thinking of me. Anytime you're miserable, you're thinking of me. Just a question kind of related to that. When we meditate, we might be alone, but most of the time we spend our time with other people. Yes. And there is a sense that we can find certain people very draining, certain people very uplifting. How does that link into what you've been talking about tonight? Is that an idea as well, or is that actually happening? No, it could actually be happening, and an idea as well. So company is very significant. And good company does uplift like good music uplifts, good literature uplifts. So it's spot on. Good company does uplift you. And in the same way, company that's not good can be a drain on resources and actually depress you. So the only thing you would do is you wouldn't seek out that sort of company. 
But if it's presented to you, if it's staring at you in the face, you meet that as best you can, but you wouldn't seek it out. It's a bit like what was said during the talk. With meditation, the powers of discrimination grow strong. And you just leave, you let go useless things. It's not a struggle or a battle. You just let them go, you just stop. So you can leave very bad company very easily without any effort. Do you recognize the difference between just being able to leave something or having a battle trying to get rid of something? It's very different. But company is very important. That's why it's so important for children, make sure they're in the right company. Another point of yeah. point you actually raised later maybe was that there are certain philosophies, as we'll call them, maybe Eastern philosophies, that would say that there is an abundant source of energy available to us if we tap into it. Yes. Whereas in the talk you were saying that we have a limited amount of energy in our lifetime. Yes. Can that be topped up from this abundant source? Yes, it can be topped up. I'll just tell you the source as well, because this is... Where is the source? Firstly, the source is the Shankaracharya, which is this teacher I referred to. Only a limited measure of energy has been provided to each individual for his life, which he may use economically or squander or increase by certain ways which make this possible. The idea is that if you don't set about to increase, you're just using all the time. Like if you don't pull into the petrol station, you're going to run out. Now if your journey is only a mile or two, that's fine. But if you want to go the maximum distance, you have to be able to replenish. And in terms of replenishing energy, meditation is the master who. That's what it does. And it does it in a very practical, pragmatic way. I mean, there is an immediate sense of energy when you meditate at an ordinary level. I think it's remarkable the total lack of energy that a person who is kind of described as mentally ill or depressed, but they might have no other symptom except that they'll be just totally energy. And I just wonder, is it within their scope like, to do something about it, to get out of that situation? Or would something they could have done, like you mentioned, would have prevented Someone who's very depressed, is that it? Well, I'm not saying they're very depressed, because they wouldn't seem to be very depressed, but mm. the main symptom would be tiredness. Tiredness. And Arising from just being negative, or? I experienced it myself at one stage in my life. All I felt was wrong with me, I just hadn't been going from the bed to the kitchen. Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, there can be many different factors yeah. contributing to this. Thankfully, it moved on. Yeah. I mean, I'm just wondering if I had been practicing all of the things that you mentioned in the course of the lecture, yeah. it would never have happened. Well, or if I had started practicing at that time, would it have cleared it up much quicker than it cleared away. Well, it's a bit late now, isn't it? I know what it is, yeah. I did apply to myself, but I, I seen it in other situations, you know. It just it fascinates me, like, uh, since the lecture is about energy and the yeah. importance of energy and philosophy and energy, and it's all about energy, is there some real connection between well-being and energy? There is a substantial connection, firstly, between well-being and energy. And when you have lots of energy, your well-being is unquestioned. The thing is that had we been practicing what was spoken about, there'd be the possibility that you'd be less affected by whatever was happening. 
Like, for example, there can be tiredness and you can be unaffected by it. Or there can be tiredness and you sink underneath it and you go way down with it. You recognize that? So there can be tiredness of the body and you can remain totally unaffected and apparently have lots of energy to continue despite the tiredness. Mm. So you can be unaffected by whatever these factors are that impact on our energy levels. I don't know, does that... It's not due to a lot of physical work. No. There's something at a more subtle level. That's right. Yeah, because physical tiredness is a very happy tiredness. Do you recognize that? The tiredness from the type of wasteful activity that we've been speaking about is not a happy tiredness. It's, it's an agitated, distracting tiredness. Tiredness in physical work is magnificent. It's that very shiny, happy tiredness. We're delighted to be tired. So a lot of this waste of energy is something going on at a subtle level. Thinking, emotionally dwelling on negatives. I mean, fear, we can be living in fear for a lot of the time. Fear of what's going to happen. Fear of going without. Fear of not being loved. Fear of, you know, being different and separate. And we seem to have a tremendous capacity for this. Fear. That can be a continuous drain. But it's definitely at a subtle level. That's right. Perhaps you've answered the question fascinated by what Liam had to say. How to let go seems very difficult. But apparently it's available in the instant where we have the ability. And that's one of the emotional dwelling on negatives. Yeah. Very hard to let go. But it doesn't make sense, does it really? If I said to you, let go of that microphone, it would happen, wouldn't it, just like that? So, I mean, letting go isn't, isn't really a hard thing. Like, you know, look at that there. Like, holding on is hard. And yet, we would say letting go of the difficulty or letting go of the hurt is hard. So, there is this perverse enjoyment in dwelling on negativity. Do you recognize that sometimes you're wallowing in negativity and someone could even be encouraging you to stop and you say, no, I won't. I'm going to stay this way for Tuesday. <laughs> I mean, did you see what he said to me? Or do you realize what he did? We somehow have this twisted view of things that this is correcting the situation by dwelling on negativity. The only victim is yourself. And as mentioned earlier, it takes a very big person to let things go, you see. It takes a big person. It requires a little substance to be able to let things go. And when you do let go of negativity, what do you experience? Mine's burdened. Well, what does it feel like? You're relieved. Relieved. And could you expand on it a little? You're more content. Yeah. So what would you be doing holding on to the negativity? Letting go seems seems hard. Yeah. Appeared hard. Yeah. 
I guess it's still with attachment, isn't it? The greater the attachment. That's right. But it is like going into the Chinese shop and having the curry and getting sick and going back in and asking for more. But it is a little bit perverse. But sometimes you find we let go and there's a little bit of string on the end. You know, you sort of let go that way. You hold it in every now and then. Yeah, you hold it in and you have a look at it while you're on your own, maybe sitting on the bus. And then someone comes along and has a chat. Actually, you put it away for a while. And then they get off the bus and say, look at this old thing. And it's like that. We are regurgitating it and we're leaving it down. and It's like a treasure. And sometimes people's whole lives are destroyed by this, this treasure, negativity. I met a chap there some year ago, probably 57, and his whole life has been destroyed with just a couple of these about his brother. A couple of negative situations between the two of them. What I could see in this man was he, he was aged, as I noticed most, very old-looking 56-year-old. But he put it down to this dwelling on this uh, resentment and difficulty. Just a couple of issues between himself and the brother. That's very pricey stuff. Are there situations where we can't help ourselves or we might need teacher or you, you would. Yes, absolutely. You may need assistance to let go. And some wouldn't have the energy to be able to let go and would need assistance. That's true. But you certainly do have choice, and we can let go. And yes, indeed, it might be that you need assistance to help you. You mentioned that this is given to each person when they're born, and each person is given a certain amount. Is that to do with the bigger picture that we don't see when you ask the question that what vision is for this life? Is that the bigger picture that we don't understand, that we really can't answer that question? That question's answered at the end of our journey? The reference to vision was encouraging us just to observe that when there is clarity of vision or clarity of purpose, it actually brings energy. It's like grace. If you're crystal clear about the aim of something, it seems to actually allow for a supply of energy to flow. But the fact, as you say, the fact that we are born with a supply of energy and each with a particular supply is a fact because it's observable. You can see that this is so. But you would have to understand a broader or bigger view to understand why we have that particular supply, yes. But we are definitely born with an individual supply. The reference to vision is that vision actually lends energy. In other words, if one were to find a lack of energy, a good question to ask is, what exactly is or am I aiming at? What is the purpose of this life? And if the answers aren't clear, that's a little flag indicating something. It's worth looking at. What exactly is the purpose of this life? What am I spending all my time on. What is the life being devoted to? 
At some stages you were talking about the use of discrimination. Yes. Could you elaborate a little bit on how to, first of all, properly use discrimination, and secondly, how you can make it grow stronger? What was the first part of that question? How you would... The proper use of discrimination, how you sort of recognize that you are discriminating. You mentioned at one stage, here I am doing something I know I shouldn't be doing, and here I am avoiding something that I should be doing. And the mechanism there is discrimination. And the sort of implication was that better use of discrimination would help to avoid that situation. Yeah. Do you recognize the simple example of like the watching television when you know you should go to bed? Does everyone recognize that one? Okay. Now, if you look at it and examine it, what you see is that it's as if it's covered over. There is a knowledge that the measure has been reached and one should go to bed. And it's conducive to one's happiness, well-being. It's even intelligent. And that knowledge is there. But it's as if the desire for some little bit of frivolous entertainment is stronger. Or another way of saying that is the powers of discrimination are weaker. So the TV wins out. Now, if discrimination is operating, the decision would be made, TV would be turned off, you would retire at exactly the right time, happy, etc. So the, in other words, the idea is to strengthen that capacity, somehow to strengthen that capacity where you're able to make that decision, choose what's conducive to happiness, well-being, and intelligence, and move in that direction. We've mentioned a number of ways in which we would practice improving our powers of discrimination. Meditation, again, is the most potent tool in that regard. But things like just practicing attention, how we live our day, for instance, assists with improving our capacity to discriminate. If we spend all our time, or a lot of our time, with the attention split, that has an enormous effect on our capacity to discriminate. You can't just discriminate in a sort of an ad hoc way. It is dependent on how you use the mind. So, for instance, practicing fullness of attention in ordinary work would help with improving our capacity. Meditation would help improve it. Anything that would bring the mind to stillness. The tendency in us is to agitate the mind. If you examine it, we think incessantly. We cause and dwell in a lot of agitation a lot of the time. So anything that would bring mind to rest, bring mind to stillness, would automatically improve the capacity to discriminate. If this were a graph of stillness, and this were a graph of issues facing you, issues that you need to decide and discriminate on. Is that all right? From down here, which is the least amount of stillness, everything looks this big. So 
issues and problems and decision-making is all very insurmountable and very troublesome from down here, looking from down here. As one brings stillness to the mind, the problems all look like they're from down here. So decisions, discriminating is easier the more the mind is fed on stillness. These may not even change. And the, the ultimate aim of meditation is stillness. Sorry, one of its aims is stillness in the mind. And if you're attending school, you'd have been given other practices that help still the mind. Okay. I've just recently realized that something that's important for me is to find inner peace. This is my first time at anything like this. And one thing that I would hear said is, and I don't know if meditation would allow me to do that, it's clear the mind of all thoughts, it's like cleansing the mind. Is that possible? Yes, it is. Yes, meditation, transcendental meditation actually cuts through the mind. It goes through all the activity and the thinking and brings it to the actual source of stillness and rest. So the idea of meditation isn't to get rid of anything. It's actually to transcend. So if you transcend what's going on in the mind, you cease to be governed by it. So you cease to be influenced, governed, and controlled by it. So meditation leads to that peace and rest, which is beyond the mind. Taking on board what's important and yeah. leaving behind the trivial issues. Yeah, no, absolutely. And what we seem to be faced with is a lot of trivia rather yeah. than what actually is important. Yes, no, absolutely. That's a description given elsewhere about discrimination, of choosing the better and leaving the worse or the less. Do you give a whole lot to the trivial rather than take the important on board? Well, habit would be strong, generally. So you, everyone in this room would know what it's like to dissolve habits that are apparently trivial. Don't you? A bit reluctant. Could it be that be afraid of the important issues? It could be. Easily, yes. The, the trivial and the habitual is all very familiar, very comfortable. Albeit false, there's a certain security in what we're familiar with. One of the most attractive features of meditation is that the more you meditate, the less you have to decide to not attend to that. It just falls away. You just lose interest in what's not important. It's not a battle. The length of meditation suitable, does that differ from person to person? I can only speak of one type, I'm afraid. When I'm speaking of meditation, I'm speaking of meditation that's available through the school, which is transcendental meditation. There are lots of things called meditation that aren't meditation. And in that regard, it's a prescribed duration of two periods of half an hour a day. Is that all right? 
and it's like going to the Bahamas for two periods of half an hour a day. Have you seen the film about Schmidt? That would encourage you to meditate. If you haven't seen it about Schmidt, go and see it, and that will encourage you to meditate. Wouldn't it? What more, sorry? You explained very well how meditation achieves stillness of mind and conservation of energy and therefore an ability to tackle very large issues and uh, see things as they really are, simply deal with them. How does keeping the attention outward and living in the present moment and indeed working with others or for others do the same thing? Very good. Well, if we take first the attention outward, if the attention is out and singular, it's concentrated and rather than being you know, splintered and divided over numerous issues internally. So if you take it in one situation, you have the attention divided like this, where it's attending to multifarious things internally. And it's evident, self-evident, that that is exhausting. It's like it burns up energy. Whereas when the attention is single and outward and full, the first thing that happens is this all comes to rest. The attention is taken off this and singularly given to something else. So because of the singularity of it and the concentration of it, it actually conducts energy. There's two ends to attention. There's the actual point in the creation where the attention is on, out here, and then there's a source, which is within yourself. Now, when the attention is single, the connection is made here and here. So it's like connecting with that source. When the attention is divided, I'm afraid that isn't so. So there's no connection with the creation of what's happening out here, and there's no connection with the source. So we end up exhausted. Here, it ends up as very efficient in the creation, and lots of energy because of this connection. Attention is underrated. Because it always sounds very simple, like just pay attention. It sounds modest or mild. But the fullness of attention is being fully present. And there's always further to go. It's very full. It has this two aspects to it. That's the first thing. What was the second part? Working with others, Okay, working for others. Again, it's it's in a similar vein. It's when the attention is on oneself. It's like a tiny little circle. You know, when you're thinking about yourself, it's quite small little circle. And you can burn up substantial amounts of energy just mulling over and thinking about and worrying about all of your issues. That's a 
tiny little circle. The minute you start turning outward, the circle expands. And it's as though when the attention turns out and off small and separate, this connection is also made. It's like energy flows when you are thinking of something bigger than yourself. Like if I'm thinking of myself and small, it's constrictive and restrictive and it's like it shuts off things. The moment I turn the attention out, this connection is made again. It's a bigger picture. Is that all right? Apart from a description of it, you can actually see it in practice, can't you? Nod. You can see it in practice. If you're thinking of yourself, it's quite a small, burdensome little thing. And you seem to have very little energy for anything. And suddenly you decide to shake it off and just attend to others. And you can actually experience a flow of energy and a capacity. But the explanation is, this is constricting and severing you, as it were, from that. But all right. You're familiar with Reiki as a form of healing and the flow of energy that is involved no. in that process? No. You can't comment? No. Okay. Can I pass it on to someone else? Please do, yeah. What more? I actually don't like to admit that this top diagram is me all over the place. And I want to know that through meditation, can I get to this straight line where there's peace, there's peace of mind, there's rest? Through meditation you can, but also just to encourage you, any time you attend with your five senses now, your five senses are your tools for attending, and any time you attend fully through your five senses, you can bring this to its singularity in a very simple way. Like right now as I'm speaking, you're attending to my voice right now and just attending to that. You can address this. But meditation is the most potent, most practical and simple tool for that. But you can practice at any time, just attending. This top diagram and the way I see that that applies to me can that continue? I mean, obviously it does, into your sleep patterns? It does, yeah. Recently, I had noticed that I had woken in the middle of the night, and whatever way I was lying, I had my fist clenched, so much so that it had left the nail impressions in my hand. And mm. To me, that's obviously a very, very stressful sleep, if you could fit to it. Yeah. Well, the way to address that is how you spend your day. See, there's a relationship between the day and the night. We could spend the day, in the context of this evening's talk, wasting energy and squandering our substance in all sorts of multifarious directions. And at night, we expect to sleep like lambs. And it doesn't quite work that way. Sometimes you can go to bed at night, and it appears like you're asleep, but really it's like, a bus has been driving around your room all night. Do you recognize that? Sometimes you can awaken and it's as if you have no sleep at all. 
you appreciate that? So it can be quite active and busy in there. What refreshes the body is sleep. So sleep doesn't necessarily refresh mind. Stillness refreshes the mind. So any practice, any little exercise that will still the mind refreshes the mind. Meditation's already been spoken of, and then there are others. And it's during the course of the day that one would need to practice these things. And then the sleep pattern would look after itself. But to try and attend to having deep, beautiful sleep and ignore the day would be a red herring. I'd be interested in what you have to say about organizations and how this kind of thing works within organizations. I think a lot of people are being asked to do more with less resource and multitasking has become, you know, a, almost an endemic culture within mm. many places. What can we do within the organizational context to calm things down? Well, you'd have to teach people about paying attention. If you want to talk about at the level of organization, you'd have to actually firstly bring people to see that this was so and then teach people how to actually pay attention. But the starting point would be with oneself. So in your organization, would be the place to start would be with yourself. So multitasking sounds all very interesting, but you can only attend to one thing at a time. But we can attend to many things in a given time. Within a given time frame, we can attend to many things, but only one at a time. Does that make sense? Now, the idea that I should be able to attend to many things at the one time is the error. Because you can't. No human being can. We can divide our attention, yes. We can split it like this and attend to many, many, many different things. And that's why we're exhausted at six o'clock. It's one of the reasons. So it's to firstly understand what's happening, that the attention can be singular on that item, that item, that item, this item. We don't have to divide it up and try and attend to them all at once. What's your working environment? There's an office, is it? Recognize trying to maybe answer the phone and do a little work on the computer at the same time and maybe adjust some paper on the desk at the same time while you're talking to me on the phone possibly and kick the door closed with your foot. Well, that's practicing this condition and it's just embedding it, making it more prominent, making it more than normal, making it more acceptable. The thing is to give all the attention to the phone call for the duration of that call. Give all the attention to the report. Give all the attention to the person that's, you know, coming in the door. Instead of dividing ourselves up. This is your most efficient state. Organizations should love this. It's your most efficient, most intelligent, most creative. This is your least efficient least intelligent, least creative, and memory is obliterated. So you can't remember anything. You can't remember a phone number. 
can't remember a person's name and have only said it a moment ago in this condition. So to bring this to your organization, it would be a matter of just practicing yourself and coming to understand it and then introducing it to people. And if they think it could be profitable, they'll be very interested. Is that all right? What's more? just interesting what you were saying about being born with a certain amount of energy and mm. the shift over the years. And I was just wondering, what habits as parents should we encourage in the home mm. with our younger children to prevent that shift? Physically, you could encourage good habits of measure in the normal way, like the measure in sleep, measure with food, you could also encourage the child to be disciplined. I don't mean in a rigid, now restrictive way, but just simple disciplines. If you take some of the very simple disciplines, children naturally get out of bed when they wake up in the morning, don't they? They naturally spring out of bed when they're very, very young. What do we say to them after a short time? We say, go back to bed, it's the middle of the night. That's what we say to them. And they end up just like us then. Coming to philosophy lectures, asking dopey questions about <laughs> how, do we, how do we pass on good things to our children? So, we could, forgive me, we could look at ourselves firstly, because whether we like it or not, we do pass on ourselves to our children. So, how we live and how we think and how we behave and our values are all passed on whether we like it or not. Have you ever opened your mouth and you heard your own parents coming out? So you've picked it up. I've picked up my parents and you've picked up yours. Even if we don't want to, we pick it up. You could teach very simple disciplines, really simple ones, sleeping, eating, measure with food, not overdoing it. Um, from a very young age, you can teach them exercises that quieten the mind. In the home, you can incorporate it around meal times. So, for instance, in my own home, before and after meals, the children will be encouraged to sit quietly and pause. Very simple little exercise to connect with the senses and let the mind fall still. And then begin to eat. Now, it's like any family, if I open my eyes, they might all be under the table sometimes. But you work with what you can and as best you can to try and instill these practices into them when they're young. You could encourage your children not to use the mind the way we do. So you could encourage your children not to worry, not to believe strange ideas about themselves not to dread an event. You could encourage them not to be governed by fear. Encourage them to take the little steps towards addressing issues. It would require mother and father to be wide awake, to actually spot all this. You could maybe observe the tendencies in the children that aren't helpful. So, for example, in the physical way, 
one of my children, when he was born, he couldn't look at you. As a young fellow, he couldn't look at you at all. While talking to you, he'd be looking over there. It was very pronounced. So he'd be having a conversation with this chap, and he's looking over there. So for years, I had to actually follow him around the room. Now, he's now a 17-year-old, and he looks straight at you when he's speaking. But that took extraordinary endeavor to constantly correct it, constantly remind him, and humorously move around the room when he's speaking to you, and, and try and assist him to keep working with it. So any tendencies you see in the child that aren't helpful, you can work with. So simple disciplines, don't let them use the mind the way we've done. Don't allow them to adopt the litany of misuse that we engage in. And where possible, and if there's willingness in particular, help them to actually begin to practice stillness of mind. Is that all right? Well, there's a little senses exercise that people can do, which is very simple. Or meditation. Children can take to meditation from 10 onwards for shorter periods, you know, 5 and 10 minutes a day. But they should be brought too, not forced. You can't go home and say, right, folks. But they can be brought to meditate as young as 10. Simple exercises, like the census exercise. Are you familiar with what I'm talking? Yeah. Children can take to that very young. No difficulty at all. Like, you know, you might say grace before and after meals, that type of exercise. But also, one of the most important things is the emotional state of the parents. The children pick up the emotional state of the parents. So if I spend my day in a dream full of worries and woes, that's what I'm passing on to my children. Whether I like it or not. Any more? Sorry, dead. Brian, I wondered, could you maybe say a little bit about the measure in terms of sleep? I know one of the the things that I've found recently is a little less sleep is better than more, but it seems to be a, a modern thinking that more sleep, I'm going to be less tired if I get more sleep. It seems to be that that's, that's something that pervades our thinking more nowadays. The measure, when the Shankaracharya was asked about this specifically, the measure it was given was four and a half to six hours sleep is the measure. But you have to be practical about this. So there are issues like, for instance, it's different with children. Little children need more sleep. Older people need more sleep, possibly. People who are sick couldn't abide by that measure. Like regulation and rule should never replace reason. You have to use reason firstly, but the regulation given was four and a half to six hours sleep. But there is a relationship between the day and the sleep. So if you spend your whole day out of measure, really seriously out of measure, you may find it very hard to survive on four and a half hours sleep. So there is a direct link between the two.
notwithstanding that, this idea that if I don't have eight hours sleep, I can't function is, by and large, just an idea. And every one of us knows in our experience waking up and feeling quite refreshed and then sleeping in and being exhausted. Does everyone recognize that? So it's in our experience. It's not that far-fetched. So the simple measure, the simple tool with sleep is get up when you wake up. Go to bed when tired and get up when you wake up. You may find that you don't go at the right time. I don't know. If you don't go when tired, then you're going to meet trouble at the other end, and so the cycle continues. Thing with the buttons to the television. <laughs> you fall foul of No, it certainly works when, when... You go when tired, when you get up when you wake tired, up. Yeah. Thank you. Okay. Is that all right? Thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you. Thank you.